So Matthew 13, we're going to be talking about the power of parables this morning. Um, I wanted to give a lesson on the parable of the seed and the sower and maybe one or two other parables Jesus taught. Um, But it seemed like it would be really helpful to maybe give more of an introductory lesson on the parables before those, uh, before those lessons. So we'll be focusing on verses 10 through 17 this morning where Jesus kind of pulls back the curtain and really explains why exactly he was teaching in this way specifically. So let, let's read this again, verses 10 through 17, and then we'll kind of start talking more specifically about some of the things that Jesus says here. Um, after, after reading it again. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him more shall be given, he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on seeing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not, you're hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Just want to talk at the first here about the nature of parables. And really this statement is going to be the most important principle of the lesson. Really everything is going to circle around this, this principle. That many valuable things really only have their value because of an association and the value that people or even just a person places on that association. And you'll notice that Jesus begins and ends his explanation of why he's teaching in this way on really emphasizing the value of the parable he just taught. So he mentions in verse 11 that this parable about a sower sowing seed on different grounds was revealing the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. And he was talking about how to him who has, he will be given an abundance. And in verse 16 and 17, he concludes by reaffirming that their eyes and their ears are greatly blessed because so many people have wanted to see what they're seeing and hear what they're hearing and have not been able to hear it. But many valuable things, and I think this relates to the kingdom, many valuable things only have value because of an association, the value placed on that association. And I think we've all seen this. Like, think about it. Have you ever seen something of enormous value that to you it looked like it was just garbage or junk. Um, For me, there's something that comes to my mind and has come to my mind in thinking about this. When I was in college in Minnesota, um, for one of my projects for a class, I needed to go to a modern art history museum. You can already see where this is going as soon as I say that, right? Um, 
one of their like prized works of art in like this big open room was a gigantic canvas with a single tear going down the center and that was it. And I just stood there thinking that this was like a big joke and that it was ridiculous that something that not only could anybody replicate, but really it was just a damaged canvas. So like not only could anybody do that, it didn't require any paint, any talent. And if anybody would have wanted to give me that canvas, like, hey, Brian, here's a gift, this great work of art. I would think somebody was trying to throw away garbage and like trick me into taking it, right? So like, why does something like that, though, have value and prestige? Because I'm assuming that that work of art was actually worth a fairly large sum of money. Well, it's, again, it's the association, right? So maybe the artist, I, had, I didn't know who the artist was, but I'm fairly certain that that wasn't just some no-name person in the art community. This was probably somebody who has created other works of art where this has enhanced meaning because of who they are. Maybe somebody just by nature of that environment of being in an art museum and recognizing that everything there is kind of meant to engage your mind and make you think about things and reflect on things. Maybe somebody has had like a life experience where they look at that work of art and it actually makes them meditate and reflect on that and they're able to value that work of art because of that. So there's a lot of reasons why somebody because of association would value something that I was not valuing and it really was determined by the condition of that person's heart and their attitude toward either the person or the environment that the work of art was in. Jesus' parables were like that. Um, imagine you come to Jesus and what you're hoping for is you're going to hear some mind-blowing teaching, right? You're going to hear some grand connection you've never heard before. You're going to hear a powerful speaker who's going to say something so motivating and so convicting. Imagine you make the sacrifice of traveling and maybe even you're taking time off of work to hear the master teacher and he just teaches this three-minute snippet of some no-name person grabbing seed and scattering it everywhere. And then he just explains that that seed just was affected by nature of where it happened to fall on the ground. The sermon's over and he walks away. Imagine that that's what you heard from the master teacher. Jesus' parables could be confusing and disappointing. And I think we need to understand Jesus could and did amaze people with his teaching. We're not going to turn to these places. I just really want to reference them. In Luke chapter 2, verse 47, that's where Jesus was 12 years old and he amazed the scribes and the teachers of the law with his understanding and answers at 12 years old. In chapter 24, at the end of Luke, he's talking with two men who are on the road to Emmaus. And they said, were not our hearts burning within us as he opened up and explained the scriptures to us. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, after the Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one having authority and not as their scribes. John chapter 7, verse 46, the Pharisees had sent some guards to arrest Jesus. They come back without arresting Jesus, and they're asked, well, why didn't you, why didn't you come back with him? Why didn't you arrest him? And they said, never has a man taught like this man teaches. So Jesus could amaze people with his teaching, and yet parables were not, at least by appearances, very amazing. So why teach in this way? Look at verse 10 in Matthew 13 again. 
It's interesting that the disciples ask this exact question. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? By the way, there's a subtlety in Jesus' response. Jesus does this a lot if you really notice closely how he switches the words in responding to questions that are about, well, why them? Notice he says, Jesus answered them, to you it has been given the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Really, what I think is the key to this is very simple. Jesus emphasizes to you, it has been granted to know. The question is, well, who are the you Jesus is referring to? These are disciples. So verse 10 is not necessarily an extension of the sermon in the situation. It's implied that after Jesus had taught this, the disciples then come to him privately. They want to know more about the parable, and so they ask him, why teach in this way? And he's very happy to explain it to them and talk to them about it, right? So it's very important, though, to understand why a disciple was a disciple and why that's so important to why they were granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven and to hear the explanation. And I think this gives us very important insight to just the nature of parables and the importance of parables in general. And really, here's the thing. This gets back to that first point that really is at the center of this lesson. Disciples valued who Jesus was. And remember that first point. There are so many things that only have value because a person values not the thing itself, but they appreciate the association that gives it value. And parables are the same way. Disciples, fundamentally, they valued who Jesus was. Therefore, they would listen to parables. They wanted to hear the explanation. And Jesus explained it to his disciples privately. But think about this. Why did they value him? Uh, Go back to chapter 1, verse 1. Again, I think there's some very simple yet very profound things that are at work with why the disciples value Jesus and how did this equip them to get meaning from parables. And how can this equip us is really how the lesson's going to progress. So chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And through verse 16, over 40 names are given that relate to this genealogy from Abraham to David to Jesus. Um, It's easy to skim over this and think, okay, let's get on with it. Like names, 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 that's nice. Okay, where's where's the meaningful stuff, right? But think about this, the longer an artist or architect spends on a specific project, what does that do to its value? Or think about this, the resources. So if an artist is using very expensive tools to finish or work on a project, how does that affect its value in the end? Or if an artist has to overcome incredible obstacles, if they've got to make really serious, meaningful sacrifices to finish a project, what does that do to its value in the end? You know, something like this that to me helps, helps me understand this better. Um, I was thinking about bringing it for means of this illustration, but in 2014, there's a website called kickstarter.com. Has anybody heard of that website? Basically, it's like somebody has an idea 
And Kickstarter is a website where somebody can advertise an idea they have and they can make a promise that, hey, if I get this much funding, I promise that you will get this product in your hands at a certain date. And it's very popular because obviously people have ideas and they need money from investors. So this guy named Adam Lewis Green, who's like a, a Bible, not a Bible, a book designer, he had an idea that I had heard about some, from some friends to create a Bible with no chapters or verses, with really nice paper, um, a really easy-to-read text layout, just a very, very nice Bible that he wanted to make kind of in the spirit of old scrolls that scribes would write on back in Jesus' day. Just a very, very interesting project. So he was expecting that maybe like 500 people might show an interest and you know, get $37,000 to then finish his idea within a year. He ended up getting over 14,000 people interested in his idea and about $1,500,000 to finish this idea. So obviously this became a much bigger undertaking than he anticipated, which means that it took him two more years to complete the project than he anticipated, three years. So I got this book called Bibliotheca in 2017, but by that time, a lot of people had asked for a refund because they didn't like how long it was taking. They were wondering if this was all just a scam. You know, maybe he scammed them out of their money with a false idea. People do that on Kickstarter. They'll advertise an idea they don't intend to finish. They'll just get money from people. Um, but he finished it. It took him a long time, but he did finish it. He created a video at the beginning of the project where it was full of ambition and hope and positivity. And he made a video at the end of the project reflecting on it. His appearance was haggard and tired. He expressed that the work was monumental and took so much more pain and sacrifice and time than he anticipated. He couldn't help but get emotional as he reflected on the difficulties of creating the project. So think about it. Getting insight into the difficulty of creating this project, how much more value do you think that put on having it in my hands in the end, besides the fact that I was personally invested in the project? Listen, these names, these are not just names. This isn't just a part of Matthew to then skim over and say, just let's get past the names, let's get into the interesting stuff. What's being expressed here is Jesus is God's masterpiece. And before we rush into the gospel, what we have to appreciate is even if you begin from Abraham, this required 2,000 years of work from God to finally get to a place where Jesus could be properly valued and understood. 2,000 years. And the resources he used was not paint or stone or wood God was creating a house on the foundation of human life. And just like people need to overcome obstacles, what you find in this genealogy is God having every reason to give up on his project and persevering still. Why did the disciples value Jesus? Because they valued where he came from. They valued the time. They valued the pain of that time, the weight of that time. And what Matthew is doing in the beginning of this gospel is he is inviting us to learn to value Jesus the same way that he did when he was called to follow him. Turn to chapter 3, verse 11. 
So very similarly, you have John the Baptist, right? And he's preparing the way for Jesus, pronouncing that this king that they've been anticipating has finally come. And John said, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Why did the disciples value Jesus? Because they believed the teaching of John the Baptist. These were men who accepted their need to repent, and they were anticipating the kind of power that Jesus would have, the coming of this kingdom that they were anticipating. And if you just look very briefly at chapter 9, verse 35, it says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. These disciples saw Jesus working miracles, teaching the gospel. They saw him changing people. They saw him changing people's attitude, their, their, their diseases, their paralysis, their demon possession. Everywhere Jesus went, the disciples saw the kingdom of God being lived out in his life. But in chapter 11, verse 20, many people saw these same things and heard these same things, and they never repented. So why did the disciples value Jesus? Because they were ready to repent and accept the kingdom for what it came to be. The disciples didn't understand everything. They didn't understand all the details of what Jesus would do and how that would be fulfilled. But fundamentally, they valued Jesus. They valued Jesus in the way that they needed to value him, to listen and stick with him to get understanding about the kingdom as they traveled with him and stayed with him. So the question is, do you have ears to hear? Because parables equip us how to understand. If you look back at chapter 13, this really is the key word of this chapter, or at least this section. Notice in verse 13 at the very end, it says, nor do they understand. Verse 14, at the beginning of the quote from Isaiah, you will keep on hearing but will not understand. Look down at the end of verse 15 and understand with their hearts and return and I would heal them. And then if you look even more forward in verse 23 when it's talking about this good soil that the seed falls on, he says, and the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it. Parables equip us to understand how to properly value Jesus and his kingdom. And I want to think about that a little bit more um, within the text here. I want to think again about why so many people did not understand, right? And I think the key is what Jesus draws out from Isaiah's prophecy that he says is being fulfilled. Um, if you look at verse 14 and 15 specifically, says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. Notice at the end of verse 15, this isn't just about accepting information, or even necessarily mentally accepting, is this right, is this wrong, is this correct, is this incorrect, this is about understanding whether or not you are in a condition. And what Jesus is saying, Isaiah was dealing with people 
where they're hearing God's word and they're not understanding that they're in a condition that needs to be healed. And so we need to remember why Jesus came and who he came for. And again, this becomes a key to being able to draw out meaning and value from parables. Notice back in chapter 1, verse 21. Jesus was really sent ultimately for one purpose. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. So this is when Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb and Joseph is being told about who Jesus would be and what he would do. Verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that's it. And just like the genealogy, it's easy to read that and say, is that all? will save his people from their sins? I mean, isn't there more to it? But think about this. Think about this even with the epidemic that's been going on for some time now with the coronavirus. Seeing how much people are affected by the coronavirus, seeing people maybe who have died or been sick, how urgent then is it for people to seek some kind of solution to this problem? Because people can see, well, this is, this is disrupting our lives. This is disrupting our, our economy. This is removing stability that we want from our system or my life. And so because people are affected so negatively, there's an urgency of trying to find some kind of solution so we can get back to normal. We need to see sin more like God sees it. The problem is not just that we don't see Jesus in the right way, we don't see our sin in the right way. When the angel said he will save his people from their sins, that should be met with uproar and applause and praise because nobody had ever accomplished truly saving anyone from their sins before Jesus came and died on the cross. The greatest problem plaguing the world from the very beginning, the problem nobody could solve, the problem that is at the source of every issue of life, Jesus came to solve that problem. And Jesus' message is summarized in one word in chapter 4, verse 12. And this relates to this one purpose that Jesus was sent for. Um, so chapter 4, verse 12. It's a few pages over. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum. Um, I'm sorry, verse, verse 17. I read a little bit earlier. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So really, Jesus' message is summarized just in this one word, and the rest of his statement there is really explaining why repentance is so urgent. And again, who is this for, right? For people who understand the issue of sin, the plague of sin, the concept of repentance is good news because we get to receive the cure that brings us back into right standing with God. We get to be cured of the greatest of infirmity that plagues mankind. And so Jesus' message, ultimately, with everything else he taught, it comes down to that one word, repent. And ultimately, the beginning of his ministry was focusing on just helping people understand the simplicity of that message. Everything that came afterward just equipped the heart that had already chosen and been convicted to repent. And if you look further in chapter 9, verse 12, Jesus' role, or his work, rather, 
His work is summarized by one role. So again, just a few pages over. So when Jesus was dining with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees were upset at this, they say, well, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In verse 12, when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. You know, the concept of surgery, if you're not sick, is horrifying. Can you imagine somebody putting you on a table and, like, ripping you up to then, like, tear things out of your body? I mean, just the, the concept is, is absolutely terrifying. But what about when you're sick? What about when you have cancer? What about if there's even one part of your body that is so infected that if that's not taken out urgently your whole body is going to begin to decay and suffer and die. Well, now the work of a physician is very appealing. And the obstacle of what needs to be done is no longer an obstacle anymore. It's how soon can I book an appointment? You know, we've had some brethren here who have needed some tooth surgery recently, Glenn and Paul. And when your tooth is throbbing inside of your head and getting a tooth ripped out is one of the most cringy things for me. You know, again, it's not, well, I'm not sure if I need this. It's get me an appointment right now. Get this thing ripped out of my face as fast as possible. And Glenn was even willing to get his tooth ripped out without pain medication, right? It, that's, that's how bad it can be. So it's not those who are healthy who need a physician. It's those who are sick. If we don't see ourselves in the right condition, then we can't value Jesus in the right way. Or his teaching doesn't have its context or meaning. So with this as well, Jesus really was only looking for one kind of person. And his teaching was to equip people to become those people that he was seeking. Look at chapter 11, a few pages over again. Verse 25 through 30. Chapter 11, 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus said... I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, verse 27, when Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. He says, nobody knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. But then he says, that, but only the people will understand whom the Son wills to reveal him to. And it's no accident that then he immediately proceeds to say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You know, just like we talked about a sick person seeing the value of a physician and the things that need to be done to find a cure, Jesus was looking for people who are weary and heavy laden. You know, when I think about the work here, the brethren here, we have a lot of brethren here who are weary and heavy laden. And just... I want to be careful in saying this, um, but there's a sense where that's a good thing. 
Because who did Jesus come for, right? Jesus came to give rest to the weary, to lighten the burdens of those who are heavy laden. It's interesting that oftentimes when we're weary and heavy laden, we feel most distant from God when the reality is it's in those times when we're heavy laden, heavy burdened, and weary that God is closer to us than at any other time. Just like a physician is closer to the sick than they are to those who are well, right? So I mean for this to be like a warning. I think Jesus was intentionally in chapter 13 saying something that was meant to be sobering, um, something that was meant to give a very serious pause. And so I think we need to think about this very seriously. Here's the reality with all of this. If we don't want God on his terms, he will let you be deceived. He will let you stay deceived. And he will let you lose your soul. And that's as true for us as it is for somebody who's never received the gospel ever. Which is why Jesus would continuously have to challenge his disciples and rebuke them and work with them. And this gets back to why the parables are so important in our relationship with God and what they teach us about how a relationship with God by faith works, operates, and have meaning. Again, that first point, parables equip us to understand how to properly value Jesus and his kingdom. It's not that Jesus was trying to close the gates of the kingdom and says, nobody can pass through these doors. He's closing it in one way so that the other door can be made more clear and open. And his disciples were traveling on the path to that door, the narrow way. So I want to finish the lesson just thinking about some, again, more personal things from this. The question is, is your heart, is my heart dull? Ultimately, parables emphasize the importance of the heart. If you notice back in verse 14 again, um, I'm sorry, verse 15, the heart of this people has become dull. And it's, again, I think no accident that when Jesus begins teaching in parables and talking about how this is all related to revealing the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, his first parable, the key to all parables, is about how the word of God is planted in different conditions of heart. We value parables and we value this truth. Parables open, they expose, they challenge, they equip the heart. And ultimately what we find when we spend time reading God's word and following Jesus and his ministry, God's greatest concern, more than external expressions of sin, God's greatest concern is where that originates in the heart. God's greatest concern is the condition of our heart. Jesus helps us learn how to share those concerns with God. Jesus, again, would often challenge his disciples, as he does here, to think more seriously about where their heart really was with God and how much they needed to take responsibility for allowing their hearts to be laid open and for God to work on them. We have to be very, very careful about having a shallow faith and a shallow understanding of God's word where we read and we don't let anything penetrate. We never wrestle with any difficult truths or difficult applications, but we hear and nothing is changing and there's no evidence 
of any further fruitfulness in our exposure to God's word. Here's another way to think about this. Somebody used these words in a lesson on biblical meditation, um, a brother that I've spent some time with, and this really, this really helped me remembering this. Jesus' ministry was spent making his disciples students of their own hearts. And that's the phrase I'm referring to, being a student of your own heart. You know, again, Jesus' teaching was not just to make me feel empowered because, wow, wasn't that exciting? Boy, he really made some incredible connections there. You know, and you imagine if, and I don't mean to step on anyone's toes with this, but imagine if somebody slapped Jesus on the back and said, good lesson, teacher. You know, imagine he would turn that around and say, it's not the lesson or how it's presented that ultimately matters. It's what are you doing with the teaching once you walk away, right? Because Jesus' ministry was spent making disciples students of their own hearts. So when we walk with Jesus, we learn this discipline. Jesus was constantly challenging his disciples to ask themselves difficult questions. It's more than once that in the Gospels, Jesus would look at his disciples and very very boldly say, where is your faith? He would boldly say, do you have no faith? He would boldly say in Mark's gospel later beyond this event, he would quote this same uh, prophecy from Isaiah and say, are your hearts dull? Do you not understand? Having eyes, do you not see? And so Jesus would continuously ask his disciples hard questions to get them to reflect on their own condition. And it wasn't to reject them and throw them away. It was to equip them to have more confidence in God's love for them, more awareness of God's wisdom, more awareness of their own condition and their need to grow, and all of these things were beautiful and essential aspects of walking with Jesus. So really one of the main points is there's just an essential value to the fruit of meditating on God's word by faith. And it's one of the most basic applications you could make. Obviously, like we know, yeah, reading God's word is a good thing, right? I think many of us, we struggle with making reading God's word a, a habit or you know, even just hearing about, yeah, we should read God's word and can struggle immediately with guilt of like, ah, yeah, I know, I know I need to read God's word, but man, making time, it's just, it's difficult. I think understanding the fruit or the outcome of it helps with encouraging the discipline itself, right? The value of meditating on God's word by faith there's something unique and self-reflective that's accomplished through that. I remember there was a brother in Alabama. Him and I would spend a lot of time together. And this, this may sound strange, but him and I were able to, you know, really be open with each other. And it became obvious when there wasn't consistent meditation on God's word because whether in me or in him, there was not the kind of sober self-reflection and conversation that there would be otherwise. There wasn't that same interest. There wasn't the same value placed on spiritual things. The anxieties of life would be greater. The pleasures of life would get so much more focus. But when God's word is being meditated on by faith, it changes our sense of value. It changes our sense of purpose. And it changes the gravitational pull of what we're letting lead our attention and get our focus. Think about this before we look at the last point of the lesson. Yes, it's the disciples who did get to understand more about the parables. But why the disciples? Not just that they value Jesus. 
They asked. <laughs> they wanted to know. They didn't just hear the lesson on the parables and say, well, that was interesting. They wanted to know. They left the environment of public teaching and they continued to talk about it. It was their life. Why were they able to get more from it? Why were they able to be so changed? Because their meditation on God's word was not just when they went to the synagogue. It wasn't just when Jesus taught some grand sermon. It was continuously seeking a better understanding. They wanted to know. It's as simple as that. Disciples wanted to know. Finally, Psalm 139. This is where we'll stop the lesson. We see this with David because God's concern for the heart is not just a New Testament concept. It's really just a universal way that God is seeking to connect with us on the condition of our heart and the value that we internally place upon him. Psalm 139, David obviously was a man after God's own heart. And the point I want to make is, Scripture uniquely equips us. There's nothing else that equips us to have such an open and honest understanding of ourselves and where we are, the value that we have to God, who God is and the value of who he is, the glory of who he is, and to see value and glory with one another and to be open with one another. Psalm 139, I just want to read verse 13 through 24. David says, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, and I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, for your, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. You know what I love about this is verse 17. David is reflecting on God's thoughtfulness toward him, the value that he has to God. And in a sense, he concludes these thoughts by saying, God, your thoughts are so precious to me. Everything you say is a treasure and I want to cling to each thought. And in verse 18, if I could count them, they would outnumber the sand. And from there, David simply concludes by saying, God, I want to learn to value you the same way that you value me. God, I see that the way you value me, the way you help me, the way you think about me is filled with so much attention, so much care, so much wisdom, so much love and compassion. If only I could learn to see God in such a way. And there is the unique value of how scripture equips us to see the glory of the vast value of what God has done for us, how we belong to him, and how he yearns to be with us in a perfectly unified condition in the resurrection. So I hope this is helpful and can serve as a helpful introduction to... Um, some more parables that we'll be studying soon, Lord willing. 
Um, but the invitation is this. You know, God's kingdom is not a kingdom that's observable with any value that we place on things like we value other things in the world. It's a value that only comes by association. If we don't learn to see Jesus and value Jesus the way that God sent him to be seen and valued, as was said earlier, God will let us be deceived and lose our souls for it. So the invitation is to see who Jesus is, to be unified with him in baptism, by repenting and turning away from everything contrary to God and his holiness and clinging to him forever to be raised with him in the last day and share an everlasting life. If there's anything we can do for you for this purpose, bring it forward while we stand and sing an invitation song.